in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're not going to, we're going to be kind of all over the book of Acts this, this morning. We're just going to do an, an overview. But let me ask you, what makes for a good book? Think of a book that you've loved. Okay, not the Bible, because I know it's church, so you're all going to say the Bible, you know. Think of a book that, that you have loved, um, perhaps even a nonfiction or a fiction book. Um, what makes a good book? A beginning and an ending? Oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah. So a good beginning, one that gets you going and a good ending. Okay. What else makes a good for a good book? The narrative. What do you mean by that? Okay. All right. Yeah. So it has, it's a coherent story, maybe a good plot. Okay. So, oh yeah, that's great. Yeah. What's going to happen next? Good characters. Absolutely. So, see, these are all things that make for a, a good story. So, um, as we come into the book of Acts, um, we're coming into a, really an exciting journey of early church history. And we're going to, one of the things I think that may make for a, a good book is um, interesting locales or locations. And the book of Acts is filled with exotic places. So we're going to visit Greece. We're going to go to Jerusalem. We'll spend some time in Cyprus, even a little remote island called Malta. We'll spend some time there, and we will even spend some time in Rome, which is pretty awesome. We're going to meet, as Charlie mentioned, we're going to meet some really interesting people. We're going to meet kings and queens, uh, military leaders. There'll be a magician we'll we'll get introduced to. We'll meet philosophers, business people. Um, We're going to meet two main characters, Peter and Paul. Um, Peter has some really amazing characters. adventures, and so does Paul. We're going to hear about their stories. We're going to meet guys like Stephen. Philip is kind of cool because Philip just kind of, he's there one day and gone the next. And what happened to Philip? So some, some pretty, pretty interesting areas. So we'll meet some, some incredible people. Um, we'll experience some, some fascinating um, journeys. We're going to uh, uh, experience shipwrecks and miracles um, betrayal and loyalty. We're going to see riots and jailbreaks. There's going to be all kinds of plot twists. That sounds like a good book. That's the book of Acts. I mean, when you thought, sat down to think of the book of Acts, how many thought, man, jailbreaks and shipwrecks and intrigue and plot twists and suspense. Who knows what's going to happen next? Just when you think, you know, these guys are in jail and everything's going to go bad for them, all of a sudden they're broken out miraculously. You know? So that will be the book of Acts. One of the things I do want to, uh, to mention to uh, kids today, if you have your, your little sheet, you'll notice, I don't know what to call them, spy dog? You know, we'll, call them, we'll call them spy dog. But um, that's going to be your cue, so you need to watch the screen for spy dog. He's going to show up, and but he's not going to stay for very long. He'll pop up on the screen periodically, and that's going to be your cue as to filling in the blanks. So your cue is up here. Um, when Spy Dog shows up, you're going to know um, pretty much what to write. So 
Are you good with that? Because that's what we're going to do. So, um. so yeah, so the book of Acts is really a tour of the first 30 years of church history. And we're going to see the birth of the church. Um, it's, it's, it's a fascinating book because we see the, the, the birth of the church in, in Jerusalem and we see its expansion going to Rome. Um, we see it beginning with about 120 people and then eventually influencing one of the greatest empires that has ever existed in humankind. So a fascinating book. So let's begin. What I'm going to do today is just overview. We're going to fly over the book of Acts. We're not going to land on any um, specific text. So just a quick overview. And I want to begin with the birth and the um, growth of the church. This is really interesting because we talk about the birth of the church, the growth of the church, but did you ever wonder where the church came from? Because where did you, we, in the Gospels, the word church is only mentioned twice by Jesus and Matthew. So when Luke, the book of Luke ends, remember this is Luke chapter, or volume two, when Jesus dies, resurrects, and ascends into heaven, there is no church. And then all of a sudden there's a church. That should cause us to say, huh, I wonder where that came from. What is this thing? What is this thing we call a church? Where did it come from? Then we see the church growing. How does it grow? Who's included in the church? And so the church is a really fascinating um, aspect because we talk about the growth of the church in the book of Acts. But I'm always fascinated by the fact that Luke chapter 24, there's no such thing as a church. Acts chapter 1, there's a church. And there are people in it. And can you imagine being one of the leaders of this new entity trying to figure out, what do we do? What is this thing? What do we do with it? How is it supposed to be led? What are the rules? Who's included? Who's not to be included? What are we supposed to do? How, how are we supposed to expand this thing? What are we supposed to expand this thing? What is its purpose? That's a pretty amazing thing. And so in the book of Acts, we're going to see the birth of the church and then also going to see how it grows. And I think one of the big questions that gets asked when we, when we consider the church and also when we um, really consider the entirety of Scripture is, and this was a question being asked in, in the days that Luke wrote this. Um, and it was a question that, that Luke addressed in his gospel. But the question is this. If Jesus was a Jew and all of his disciples were Jews, the apostles were Jews, how come the church is primarily Gentile? Well, that's a pretty good question. How is it that Jesus being a Jew who came to save his people and his disciples and his apostles are Jews and yet the church is primarily consists of, of Gentiles? We can ask that question today. Why is it primarily Gentile? Well, the book of Acts is going to help give us understanding to that question. Of course, one of the big questions that is prevalent in Luke as well as in Acts and that is how can a crucified man be Lord of all? Crucifixion was a horrible death, and it was, a, it, was a, it was the death of a rebel. It was the death of a sinner. It was the death of somebody who was deserving of God's wrath. It was the death of somebody whom God had abandoned. It was the type of death that only the lowest of the low were, um, were guilty of. And yet, 
People are saying this man who was crucified is Lord of all. How is that? How does that happen? Why is he considered the Lord of all? And so we're going to see some of those things. We're going to witness the early leadership of the church. And as I mentioned earlier, imagine being the very first leaders of this, of this entity called a church, of this organism called a church. How would you lead it? We're going to see they're utterly and completely dependent upon prayer. Um, that shouldn't change. Maybe today we are less dependent upon prayer, especially in the West where we are dependent upon our abilities and our finances and our, um, our organizational skills and those types of things. But they're like going, we're not quite sure what a church is. Um, we have a little bit of idea. We can look back and, and see some continuity with the Old Testament, the Old Testament community. And I think there's some continuity there. But um, they had to wrestle with things like, what do we do with Gentiles? because the Old Testament community rejected Gentiles. Well, they could come in, but they were always second-class citizens. What do we do with that? And they depended upon prayer. So those are just some things. So that's our first big theme, is the birth and the growth of the church. The second big theme is that of Jesus. So we want to pay attention to Jesus. Now, there's a lot of aspects that I could talk about with Jesus. And um, we could talk about how, how Luke in the book of Acts presents Jesus, because he presents him as the Christ, which is the Messiah. We'll talk a little bit about that. Um, Luke also presents Jesus um, as the name, which is really interesting, that there is salvation in no other name. And they baptize them in the name of Jesus. And so we see Luke really um, make much of this idea of the name of Christ. We see that Jesus is the servant and the coming king. But all of those are, we just don't have time to go through all of them. Um, that's for some other time. But I do want to focus on this one aspect of Luke's presentation of Jesus in the book of Acts. And that is as resurrected Lord. Because that's a major, major aspect of the person of Christ. So, so Christ is presented in these multifaceted ways. We're, we see him as Messiah. We see him as coming king. We see him as the name. We see him as the servant. We see him in a lot of different aspects. But I want to focus um, on this idea of resurrected Lord because I think that is perhaps one of the key elements of the presentation of Jesus in the book of Acts. Luke tells us or informs us that Jesus could not be Messiah and Lord if he remained in the grave. That he has to be resurrected. Resurrection is key to Jesus being both Messiah and Lord. And we're going to see this throughout the book of Acts. And the reason I think that this might be important is because this was a really, you and I, we talk about Jesus being resurrected and it just kind of, we don't, stressed too much about it, but it was a very divisive issue among the Jews. Resurrection, um, in fact, later we're going to, way later, we're going to be in Acts for a long time, by the way. It's 28 chapters. Um, just going to be there for a while. But way towards the end, we're going to see Paul, perhaps purposely, 
at one of his trials, he, he recognizes that there are both Sadducees and Pharisees judging him. And so Paul brings up the resurrection and it splits the group in two. Basically, he picked a fight. We'll talk about his purposes and his reasons. Because the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection and the Pharisees did. So even amongst Jews, resurrection was a really divisive issue. But amongst pagans, amongst the Gentiles, resurrection was abhorrent. They despised the idea that resurrection was just a filthy, nasty, icky. Resurrection. That's just icky. I've got to go take a shower after hearing about resurrection. Remember when Paul was in Athens and he's talking to the philosophers on Mars Hill? When did they have a problem? They have a problem when he brings up the resurrection. Because resurrection is icky. See, Gentiles despised material the material was, was, was defiled. And so a physical body was, was icky and nasty. And it's, the whole goal is to escape this physical carnal body and live in the spirit realm. The spirit is good and the, the body is evil and nasty. And so to say that Jesus rose from the dead was really, really a difficult concept for them to, to overcome. And so the, the idea of Jesus being the resurrected Lord is a major issue for Luke. And he talks a lot about the, the resurrected Lord. We're going, to see, um, we're going to see many of the sermons, and there's a lot of speeches in the book of Acts, and, and a lot of sermons, and they focus on Jesus being resurrected. So resurrection is a huge issue. It's a huge issue for us, but it was a controversial issue for um, the people in, um, in the days in which this book was written. So it's a central theme of Acts that Jesus is crucified. He is now the, the exalted Lord. His resurrection, according to the book of Acts, according to Luke, is that his resurrection is vindication by God that Jesus is the Messiah. And that... Um, God glorifies Christ in chapter 3, verse 13. We read, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. You accused him of being traitorous and blasphemous, but God raised him from the dead. In other words, you're wrong. God's right. God's raising him from the dead is vindication that what Jesus did and said was, a, was, was actually from God. So the resurrected God, Christ is the fact we're speaking of God vindicating Christ. In fact, we see in 2.36, at his resurrection, God the Father made him both Lord and Christ. Chapter 2.36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. As the resurrected Lord... um, Therefore, because he's the resurrected Lord, his words are, are authoritative. And um, we see this in, um, 
What verse did I put up here? I put up here, oh, uh, 22.10. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go to Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Paul took those words as authoritative. When Jesus spoke, Paul said, yes, Lord. In other words, your words, because you are, he's witnessing, he's having, he's experiencing the resurrected Lord. In fact, he says, Lord, Lord. Who are you? Who are you, Lord? Jesus says, I'm, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then, what shall I do? You're the resurrected Lord. What do I need to do? This is what you need to do. Okay, then that's what I'm going to do. In other words, because you're the resurrected Lord, your words are authoritative. I will do everything you ask me to do. In fact, we'll see in chapter 220, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a really fascinating passage of text, and we'll spend a a fair amount of time with it. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's in 220, but it's quoting a passage from Joel. So think about this. When Joel wrote this, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, who is in Joel's mind is the Lord? Does Joel have any idea really about Jesus? So who's the Lord? Yahweh. And now the authors, Luke is saying, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus, he's saying that Yahweh in the Old Testament, that Jesus is divine. He's ascribing to Jesus the attributes of Yahweh, of God. So when Joel says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, nobody has a problem with that. And in Acts, people are saying, call upon the name of Jesus and you'll be saved. These are major, major issues. They're calling upon Christ as the resurrected Lord. And he is the author of salvation. We're going to see many that Jesus offered many proofs of his resurrection because that is central to the Christian life. It is central to the book of Acts. And so I hope as we go through this, we'll pay attention to this major, major theme. Another major theme in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, then, is a major theme in the the book of Acts. And if you don't mind, I'm going to get a drink of water. And I just spilled a little, but I guess I didn't have to tell you that, did I? Just water. From beginning to end, we're going to see the Holy Spirit. In fact, um, probably two-thirds of the chapters in the book of Acts reference directly the Holy Spirit. Um, If you were just do a search, Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, you will find... um, Up to chapter 11, from chapters 1 to chapter 11, the Holy Spirit is in every single one of those chapters. Um, And then we see him in chapter 13. We see the Holy Spirit in chapter 16. The Holy Spirit in chapter 19, 20, 21, 28. So the Holy Spirit is all over the book of Acts. Those are at least direct references to the Holy Spirit. In fact, some would even say that Um, The book of Acts ought to be titled The Acts of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to maybe disagree with that in a little bit, but I'll get there. But he is central. I mean, he is key. And we're not surprised, are we? Because remember in the book of Luke, 
Luke focused on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's a big issue for Luke. Luke gives us the um, the the most complete birth narrative of Christ and how did Christ come to be born by the power of the Holy Spirit. He will overshadow you, Mary. And the Holy Spirit is throughout the book of book of Luke. Luke loves to talk about the Holy Spirit. So we're not surprised in Luke volume 2 that we're going to see the Holy Spirit everywhere from beginning to end. In fact, he is called the promise of the Father. And he is called the in, in Luke, call, in Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke calls him the power from above. And in Luke chapter, or in Acts chapter 1, he's called the promise of my Father. So he is the fulfillment of God's promises. John said, I baptize you with water, but not many days from now you'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So, Luke picks that up in the book of Acts and says, yes, this is the promise of my Father. He is the one who is promised in the Gospels and then imparted on the day of Pentecost. In fact, the Spirit would be the supreme characteristic of the Messianic age. How do we know Messiah has come? Because the Spirit has come. Because the Messiah is the one who is specially endowed with the Holy Spirit. But he's not only the one who has the Holy Spirit in a special way, he is the one who imparts the Holy Spirit. So how do we know the Messianic age has come? How do we know Messiah has come? Because Jesus, who had the, had the Holy Spirit, gave the Holy Spirit to his followers. This is one of the ways we know that we are living in the days of the Messiah. And so, in the Messianic age, every Christian received the Spirit. We'll see that in chapter 2, verse 4, chapter 10, verses 44 through 45, chapter 11, verses 15 through 18. And we, of course, bring that forward from Joel because Joel says, in the latter days, I will pour out my spirit. And you'll notice who Joel says is going to receive the spirit of God on your sons and your daughters. And old men will prophesy and young men will dream dreams. Basically, what Joel is saying is everybody from the least to the greatest, male and female, are all going to be endowed with the Holy Spirit. Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord is going to be saved and have the Holy Spirit. And you're going to go forth in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is how you know that these are the last days. This is how you know that this is the Messianic age because the Spirit will be poured out. And we're going to see the Spirit poured out in Jerusalem. Then we're going to see the Spirit poured out in Samaria. Then we're going to see the Spirit poured out to the Gentiles. Then we're going to see the Spirit poured out to the uttermost parts of the world. So you see these concentric circles. The Spirit moves um, and encompasses every walk of life and every group of person. Everybody who was cast out and considered um, exiles and considered um, not worthy of God are now included in this realm of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers Christians to do the work of, of Jesus. In fact, in the book of Acts, really what we see is now this is the extension of Jesus' ministry. Jesus, and we're going to see next week, um, that um, I wrote to you, O Theophilus, about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. He began them. But what Jesus began, he then empowers his disciples to continue. 
And so what we're seeing now is that believers are baptized in the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. They're filled with the Spirit as they proclaim the Gospel. They do miraculous deeds. We're going to see miracles performed by the Holy Spirit. People empowered with the Spirit to do really, really um, amazing things. We're going to see um, people healed and people discerning motives and and a variety of different things um, all by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, um, So our first... So that's our third big theme of the, of the book of Acts. The first one is the birth and growth of the church. The second one is Jesus as resurrected Lord. The third one is the Holy Spirit and how he um, leads and directs and guides the church. And the third one then is God the Father. Or I'm not the third one, but the next one is God the Father. God the Father is um, a major, major theme in this book. In fact, I would say that God the Father is the central theme of the book. His activity is at every major junction in the life of the church. In the beginning, the disciples are told to wait for the promise of the Father. Peter's sermon um, in chapter 2 highlights what God has done through Jesus. The Father guides believers at critical times and he guides people through prayer and through dreams and visions and angels. I guess my point is this. We see that the book of Acts, one of the major themes is Jesus. One of the major themes is the Holy Spirit and one of the major themes is the Father. The book of Acts is a very Trinitarian book. I don't want us to miss that. That's why I kind of uh, push back against the idea of the book of Acts being called the Acts of the the Holy Spirit, because it's not. Well, I don't want to be that adamant about it. it. It's the act of the Trinitarian God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are all working. We see the Trinity so well in this book. So I don't want us to miss that. Our final, our fifth major theme in the book of Acts we can't overlook is that of missions. The book of Acts displays God as reaching out to people to enable them to hear the gospel message, to be converted, and incorporated in the people of God. So God reaches out to people. He enables them to hear the gospel message. And through hearing the gospel message, they are converted. And being converted, they are then incorporated into the people of God. They become part of the community of God. They become part of the church. When a person believes, they become part of the church, the people of God. And so the book of Acts shows God um, using flawed people like Peter and James and Paul and Barnabas and Silas to bring forth the gospel message for the purpose of salvation. What we're going to see is God expands the boundaries of the community of believers. In other words, the community of believers does not remain in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where everything begins. And then immediately, God begins expanding this and moving them out. This is, I think this is much like what was meant to happen in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve, what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to bear the image of God where... Across, not, they weren't just to stay in the Garden of Eden. 
They're to expand the Garden of Eden. Be fruitful and multiply. What are you going to do? When you multiply, you're bearing image bearers. You give birth to an image bearer who is now a representative, an image. Now we see the image of God in that person and they begin to expand the borders of Eden so that the image of God, the glory of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And this is what's going to begin to happen in the book of Acts. They're going to begin in this little area called Jerusalem and then it's going to burst forth through the walls of Jerusalem into Judea and then into Samaria and then into the uttermost parts of the earth. And that is the gospel going out. God is reaching out to people of all walks of life. And so he expands the boundaries of the community, not just geographically, but ethnically. Because we're going to see an Ethiopian eunuch come to know Christ. You should know that an Ethiopian wouldn't have been a Jew. But he becomes a believer. And as a eunuch, he would have been rejected. He would have not been allowed to worship in the temple. He was a a a flaw. I don't want to say flaw, but but he was marred. And so he was not be, be allowed to worship. And the Spirit comes upon him and he is saved. And he is brought in and he goes to Ethiopia. Ethiopia is one of the the, the places where we have one of the longest traditions of Christianity. More likely than not by this Ethiopian. And so God's not just expanding things geographically. He's expanding things ethnically. And he's expanding the gospel to all sorts of people. He expands it to women. We're going to see women play a huge role in the book of Acts, which shouldn't surprise us, right? Because remember in Luke, Luke's big on making sure that women are included. Not only that women are included, but oftentimes in Luke, women are the heroes of the story. We're going to see the same thing in the book of Acts. We're going to see women not just mentioned, but actually as... um, Primary movers and shakers in, in, in this whole thing. I love that story where we have that, that the, 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 uh, the adulterous woman, the, uh, actually the, uh, um, the, uh, uh, the woman of ill repute and she's in the Pharisee's house and, and Jesus refers to her and, and she, has, she washes Jesus' feet with her tears and dries his feet with her hair and, um, and, and Jesus basically turns to a Pharisee and says, look at her, she's the model you should follow. That's an amazing thing. She's the one. And he tells a Pharisee, and this Pharisee's mad at Jesus for allowing such a woman to touch him. And, and he basically turns around and says, now she's the model. She's the example. I want you to be like her. Wow, that just had to, just like, not only could they not comprehend it, it just probably just got into their craw just a little bit and just, We're going to see that in the book of Acts. We're going to see Samaritans come to Christ. We're going to see centurions, Roman soldiers, become Christians. We're going to see Gentiles become Christians. Chapter 1, verse 8 serves as the paradigm of this. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's really, you could almost say that might be the outline of the book of Acts. We're going to see it go out that way. And so it 
to geographic regions and it spreads ethnically and it spreads um, across genders and various roles and various professions. Basically, what we're seeing is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. In you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. We just read that. See, now, here's an example. I'm going to get off track a little bit. We're reading the Bible through a year, and we just read about the promise to Abram. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And you can see the connection in the book of Acts. That this is now fulfilling the promise. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed um, in you, Abram. And we're going to see that Abrahamic covenant Um, being fulfilled in the book of Acts. What a great, great story. So missions is huge. One of the things, kind of a sub-point of missions, is what is the message of missions? And obviously there's a strong proclamation of the gospel. As I said earlier, numerous speeches are recorded. We're going to see a lot of speeches and a lot of sermons. We shouldn't be surprised to see a lot of sermons because how does the gospel go forth? How is a person saved? They're saved by the hearing of the gospel. That's what we're going to be studying downstairs um, in our evangelism Bible study, and that is the message of missions. One of the things we're going to see, one of the primary elements of their sermons that they declare is the death of Jesus as being necessary for salvation. Acts 20, 28. We say... I don't know why I said that. Oh, Oh, yeah. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So we see that um, the church has been attained by, by the crucifixion of Christ. We're going to see Jesus as the suffering servant in chapter 3. Verse 18, we'll see Jesus as the suffering servant. That's Luke. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come in the presence of the Lord, that may send Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the time of... um, Till the time of restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So we're going to see that the need for Christ as a suffering servant. We're going to see that the resurrection gives Jesus authority to offer salvation. It's the centrality of the resurrection um, to the gospel message. So we're going to see this gospel message. We're going to see the crucified Christ and the risen Lord as central themes to the gospel message. So the mission goes out. The message of missions is that Christ died for your sins and is resurrected, is risen again. He has all authority. He's the resurrected Lord. And the way, the method by which um, this message goes out is, first of all, through speaking the gospel, sharing the gospel. The gospel is a, salvation is a verbal thing. Salvation comes through preaching the gospel. But we're going to see other things that um, assist with the proclamation, like miracles. It's going to testify to the veracity or the truthfulness of the gospel proclamation. We're going to see the disciples and others living out the gospel. So they not only proclaim the gospel, but they do great miracles in the name of the Christ whom they are preaching. But we also see them being 
um, doers of the word and not just hearers of the word. They're going to reach out to the poor and to the marginalized and they're going to um, seek to bring them in and show compassion to them. And one of the great things about what we read about missions in this is how missions is unhindered by opposition. And, and I kind of wanted to spend a little more time here, but as we go through um, the book of Acts, we'll, we'll see this very clearly. This religion began with 120 people. It was not accepted by the Jews. Rome considered it a sect of the Jews, and so they allowed it to continue. But once Christians separated from the Jewish community, then the Rome didn't like the Christians any longer. And so they began to persecute them. So Jews don't accept them. Gentile, the Roman Empire doesn't accept them. And they're really few in number. And you could wipe them out really quickly. And they don't. They keep growing and growing and influencing everywhere they go. They're influencing people. And people are being saved and churches are cropping up all over the Roman Empire. In other words, opposition does not stop or hinder God's plans to bring about his purposes. In fact, we're going to see God use opposition to spread the gospel. Because the people are in Jerusalem. How does God get his disciples out of Jerusalem? Opposition. And they flee. And then they get really satisfied in in the area of Judea and stuff, and God's got to get them out of Judea and out further into the Roman Empire. So how does he do that? Opposition, persecution. And so God is actually going to use opposition to accomplish his purposes. So to me, this is so important for us because we think that an opposition is going to like hinder the, well, what if I get opposed? I share the gospel. Or what if we do this and that? That might, what if that might bring hindrance to the gospel. Are you kidding me? The gospel goes out. Um, un, God is not hindered by any opposition that the most powerful empire known to man at that time could ever squash. And God is not going to be hindered by any opposition you and I face as we seek to accomplish God's purposes on earth. Just not going to happen. I'm not saying there's not going to be opposition. Oh, there's opposition. Opposition's everywhere. In fact, give away a little bit here. Every city Paul goes to, he gets beat up. All right? He goes to a city, gets beat up. Goes to another city, proclaims the gospel, gets beat up. Goes to another city, proclaims the gospel, gets beat up. That's Paul's life. When I go to the city, share the gospel, and... And after that, I'm going to get beat up. I pray none of us get beat up. I'm just saying opposition to the gospel is nothing new. And it does not hinder the gospel. It doesn't hinder God's plans one bit. In fact, God uses it to spread the gospel. The other thing we're going to see as um, a method of missions is the dominance of prayer. Prayer is dominant in the book of Acts because it's dominant in Luke. Luke, again, he loves the idea of prayer. He focuses on prayer. And he focuses on prayer in the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, prayer is a major means by which the gospel goes forth. So with that, I hope you've, uh, we've given you a very, very brief 
but I, I hope maybe whet your appetite a little bit for the, for the Gospel of Acts that we can, next week we're going to get into it. I would ask maybe read chapter 1 next week. Um, we're probably going to get through verse 11 at the most. But read the whole chapter, read the whole book if you can. Um, but read at least the first chapter of the book of Acts. It's only, what, 26 verses. It won't take you very long. We'll focus on the, um, the, the first 5 to 11 verses next week. I haven't quite decided yet. So with that, let me uh, bring this message to, a, to an end. So I guess we should ask, what is the book of Acts? And a lot of people have asked this question, how should it be titled? Well, the official title is the Acts of the Apostles, and people have pushed back against that, saying, well, it's not really the Acts of the Apostles. It's probably more the Acts of the, the Holy Spirit. And then others have said, no, it's really the Acts of Jesus. And then others have said, no, it's really the Acts of God. And I'm saying, yes. So I've instead entitled this The Triumph of the Gospel. That the gospel, the, the Trinitarian God, takes his message and overcomes all obstacles and all oppositions. So in the name of the triune God, the gospel, the good news of the triune God goes forth. You can disagree with me on that, but for the next long period of time, that's going to be the title of our series. So learn to live with it. That's just the way it's going to be. Um, because as God sovereignly directs, um, Jesus gloriously reigns. The Spirit is empowering the chosen people of God to carry the gospel ministry to the ends of the earth. And, by the way, uh, I'm not certain, let me be careful in what I say, how I say this, that the book of Acts has ended. Now, I know that the book of Acts is written by the gospel, of, by the author Luke, the inspired author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, ended at chapter 28. However, the book of Acts continues, or the Acts of, or the triumph of the gospel through the triune God continues, and it continues now to this day, and it continues through this little church in Pine, Arizona, that God is still sovereignly moving his people. Um, Christ is still reigning over us, and the Spirit is still empowering us to go forth unhindered by any opposition to present the gospel to all the world, including your next-door neighbor, including everybody whom we come in contact with. So we are going to begin living the gospel. It is a book of history, and yet it is living history because we're still living it today. So if you will, let's stand and... um